we're going to begin a new mini-series um, starting this week. And uh, I will not be teaching through the book of Revelation. Um, I did that some years ago through the whole entire book. Um, maybe one day I'll do it again. Um, but for now, uh, the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 3. Um, because in those three chapters, um, it tells us, and the title of my series is What Christ Thinks of the Church. What Christ Thinks of the Church. That's going to be the title for the next uh, several weeks of the series, What Christ Thinks of the Church. Um, and each sermon um, will give us, well, today will be an introduction. We're looking at chapter one. Um, and then each week we'll be looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor um, in whom Christ um, has a message to, a specific message, and it's a message for us. It's a message for all the churches. And so we need to heed it. This word is important. And so, you know, in, in, in these messages that we'll be seeing in these three chapters, there's a lot to examine about what took place in these churches in Laodicea and Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamum and Philadelphia. What, what was taking place in these churches? What were their strengths? What were their weaknesses? And how did, how did the Lord look at this? And more importantly, you know, looking at ourselves, as great grace and truth church, what kind of church are we? If we were to look at ourselves in the mirror, and we were to evaluate ourselves, what would our evaluation be? But more importantly, what would the evaluation of Christ be? And this, is put, this burden is on my heart for several reasons. Um, because when I look at the condition, not only of grace and truth, but in churches in general, you know, I think we misjudge. We, we judge by appearances or we have false ideas of what church is, a church is supposed to be. What we deem success in one church may not be successful in the eyes of God. And what we deem to be a failure in the eyes of men may be a success in the eyes of God. And so understanding what is important to Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church, the head of the church, I think is, is just fundamental. We need to have this better understanding. And in order to have a better understanding of what Christ thinks of the church, we need to have a better understanding of who Christ is. And that's what our chapter does today. You see, last week we celebrated Easter Sunday. We celebrated the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's the, that's the cornerstone of our faith. You don't believe in the resurrection, you might as well curse God and die. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of the dead. Jesus died, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he rose again. And he didn't die again, he resurrected to new life, to spiritual life, to holy, godly life, eternal life. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he walked this earth, and then he ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he rules all the universes, the sovereign king of, the, of all the galaxies, of every creature, of every atom, of every molecule. He rules as the sovereign God-man seated in heaven. We need a high vision of who Christ is. If you don't know who Christ is and you don't understand his, his current and present reality, then you're not going to understand church. Because the church belongs to Jesus. 
And if you don't know Jesus and you don't understand who Christ is, then your behavior and how you conduct yourself in the church is going to be pretty much consistent with your view of Jesus. All right, let's read. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you once again that we as your people, as your sheep, can come to worship you in spirit and truth, to gather together in this place, to lift up our voices and sing you for which you are infinitely worthy of. We praise you, Lord. We bless your holy name. And Lord, we acknowledge our own unworthiness to be in your presence, but through the blood of Jesus, we have this divine access. We've been freed. We have access to the throne of grace and we could joyfully and humbly come into your presence. Almighty God, we ask that you would open our eyes and hearts, illuminate to us the word before us and bring our hearts into conformity to your will. Help us to have a bigger vision for who you are. Enlarge our hearts to you. Cause us to be more humble, to obey you, and to love you, and to fear you, that you may receive all the glory through the churches from now to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation is a very complex book. Now, I find it interesting. A lot of Christians, when they first get saved, they get the Bible and the first book that they read is not Genesis, it's not John usually, which is what I recommend, but I think the curiosity of many young believers is, let me go right to the book of Revelation. And there's no other book in the world that people start reading at the end instead of the beginning except the Bible. People jump to the book of Revelation, they get through the first three chapters like we're going to do, and it's good, and then after that, they're like, oh wow, what did I get myself into? And they back off and they leave it and there's confusion. And so with that, there's a lot of apprehension and avoidance. It's a bizarre book. It's filled with images of lions and lambs and angels and demons and dragons and ten-headed monsters and bottomless pits and glassy seas. And while many people approach it like it's a puzzle book that has to be solved, it's really a picture book. It's apocalyptic literature. And to understand these pictures, these images that are in the book of Revelation, you need to know the rest of the Bible. Because two-thirds of what's written in Revelation is taken directly out of the Old Testament. And while the book is loaded with apocalyptic visions that are very difficult to understand and interpret, there also is a very simple message to the book. The simple message is this, is that Jesus Christ is bringing divine revelation to his servants 
of what must soon take place. The message of Christ is to comfort the church, to encourage the church, to strengthen the church. And that is because the church, the churches, which is the main recipients of the original letter of the book of Revelation, were the seven churches of Asia. And those seven churches are, are outlined to us in chapters 2 and 3, and those, those, um, those are also listed to us in verse 11, the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamum, the church of Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now these churches all existed in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, western Turkey. Uh, this was where Paul finished his third missionary journey, the church of Ephesus was planted by Paul, and from Ephesus, all these other churches developed over a period of time. So the first thing we want to see here is what is the context? What is the literary context, and who is Jesus speaking to? Uh, who is the author of the book? What is the intention and the occasion of the book to understand what we're going to see in the next several chapters? It's important to understand that the book of Revelation was originally intended to be sent to the seven churches of Asia. Because what is outlined here is things that are going to soon take place in Asia Minor. It's not as if this was <coughs> some future event that's going to happen far removed and that it, it's irrelevant to the original readers. In other words, it's not as if to say Jesus is saying, okay, seven churches, read the first three chapters after that. You don't really need to know anything about it. That's going to happen thousands of years in the future. No. Some of it will, but there's a much bigger context here. The main thing that Jesus wants his people to know is that he's with them. He wants them to know that he is present with his people. He is among them. He is in the church. And as they suffer, he suffers with them. Or rather, we suffer with and share in the sufferings of Christ. And that throughout the church age, there will always be suffering of God's people. But in the end, Christ is victorious. The first few verses tell us a lot about this book. The first is that it's a revelation. The word literally means apocalypse. Now, the apocalypse, in our understanding, means the end of all things. And the word here simply means, apocalypsis in Greek simply means an unveiling or a disclosing. In other words, these things, these secret things that belong to God, uh, has been now revealed to us, has been disclosed to us. God has not hidden his counsel. He has not hidden his plan, but he has made it known to us. This is the goodness of our God that God has revealed the good news to us, the gospel to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Once for all in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And through his son, in this, in this recording here in the book of Revelation from John the Apostle, we have a, a greater picture, a, a disclosure of all that's going to take place within the church age. And that's important to understand. It's written to who? His servants. It is not just some group of biblical scholars or elite esoteric people who could understand. No, it is written to his servants. In fact, it says that those who read this prophecy will be counted as blessed. 
Rather than shun the book of Revelation, we not only need to read it, but understand that we'll be blessed if we read it and cause others to hear it. In fact, it says to read this aloud. Now, of course, that has to do with the circulation of these uh, uh, apostolic letters in the early church, but now as it's included in the Bible, we ought to read the book of Revelation out loud. There is a blessing that comes with it. And I guess the bigger question comes this, is what is meant by the time-sensitive prophecy when the Lord says these things must soon take place and the time is near? Again, if this is speaking of something that's happened thousands of years later, then something is, is askew here. Something's missing. Uh, if we're 2,000 years removed, then how do we resolve that? What relevance would that have to the churches in Asia? The answer is that the book of Revelation describes a cosmic conflict, a spiritual conflict, a spiritual war that is taking place between the people of God and the people of Satan. The seed of God and the seed of the serpent. And this conflict is going to continue through the whole church age until the end. And when that spiritual conflict comes to an end, it's going to intensify, it's going to increase, and it's going to get a lot worse. Remember I spoke a few weeks ago, birth pains, that is the whole point of the book of Revelation. So these things must soon take place and will continue to take place. And the relevance for the churches of Asia is that they were experiencing mild persecution at this point. And the Lord is saying things are going to heat up. It's going to get worse. And so therefore, in the immediate relevance, we know that the book of Revelation was written Approximately about 80, 80, 95. It was during that period of time that Domitian was the emperor of Rome. And Domitian was a very hostile emperor to Christianity. Uh, during the first three centuries, there were seasons of intense persecution. And, you know, it would wane. It, would, it was kind of wax and wane. There'd be seasons of intense hostility, and then it would relax for a while. And depend who the emperor was. And Domitian hated Christians. It was simply that, fa that matter. Not only that, but it was the attitude in general of Romans at the time. Although Christianity had been received well in the early first century, by the time you get to the end of the first century, by and large, Roman culture hated Christians. And so the people hated Christians, and Domitian, who was an emperor of the people, hated Christians, and the hostility was intense. Christians were already experiencing ostracization, marginalization, they were persecuted, they were ridiculed, they were being boycotted. They were experiencing hostility in many different ways. <coughs> but the real persecution was about to come. It was going to get violent. And then blood would be shed. And under Domitian, some of the cruelest, the most violent and heinous of persecution would take place in the church. And so it's within this context... Christ is saying these things must soon take place. And so in the greeting here in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
To him who has loved us and set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, John is the author of this letter. Most church historians and scholars agree that this John was John the Apostle. The beloved of the Lord, he was one of the twelve, the original twelve. According to church history, John lived longer than any of the other apostles, just as Christ had promised in John 22 that he would not see death in the same fashion of martyrdom uh, as the rest of the apostles would die. Uh, but John would live to a ripe old age. He would live well into his 90s, um, and he, he preached the gospel to his dying breath. Uh, he was the bishop of the church of Ephesus, and up until he was an elderly man, they would carry him in on a cot into church and he would preach from his cot. He couldn't sit, he couldn't stand, but laying down uh, on a cot that he would preach the word of God. And so him being the bishop of Ephesus, which was a church that Paul had planted many years earlier, he lived there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well. John was arrested during this time of intense hostility um, because during this time, they saw the leaders of the church as the biggest threat. And so, of course, in, in early in ancient Rome, if you could get rid of the leaders of this faction, then you could destroy the movement. And so John, being one of the biggest leaders in the church, was arrested by the Roman government and, um, and was brought to Rome. And he was, he was held on trial before the emperor. And according to church tradition, now of course, we don't hold this as authoritative, it's not scripture, but according to history, according to church tradition, John the Apostle was sentenced to be boiled in a vat of oil. There was a vat of boiling oil, and he was sentenced to death to be dipped in that vat of boiling oil and cooked to death. Now, the Romans were ingenious in coming up with forms of torture uh, that were cruel and unusual and heinous. And so John was dipped in the boiling oil, and instead of turned into a fried apostle, he survived. And he came out in one piece. God delivered him. And amazed at the miracle of this, uh, the Romans had no other choice but to send him into exile. And he was banished to Patmos, which was an island off the coast of Asia Minor. It was a penal con con colony. And in uh, Patmos, there was a prison there. People were sent there to exile. And it was a harsh place. It was a very difficult place. And it was there where John receives this vision, this vision of, um, of this revelation from Christ. Uh, and so who are the recipients? It's these seven churches. Now, I just want to say one thing about the seven churches that's important. These seven churches are literal seven churches. One of the problems that people get into with Revelation is differentiating between the symbolic language and literal language. These were literal seven churches. One of the things I've seen is people say, no, they weren't literal churches, but each church represents a different period through church history. And so therefore, the church of Ephesus represents the early church in the patristic period. And then the church of Smyrna represents the early medieval church. And then so on and so forth. And Laodicea represents the church of the end times. Well, that's really nice, but there's nothing here to indicate that that's what is being told. Christ has a literal message. These churches existed. And they had issues and they had commendations. 
And while and, and, and another problem with that is how do you know how long the church age is going to last? How do you know we're not in the church of Smyrna now rather than the church of Laodicea? It's assuming that we're in the end times right now and this system really falls apart quickly. Rather, what we could say is that because the number seven is the number of completion and perfection of God, uh, uh, and, and because the book of Revelation is a book of numbers, then we could see this, that this is not just a message to the seven churches, but it's a message to all churches through all time. Because these seven churches represent a variety of churches that will exist and do exist throughout the church age. And so therefore, the message is for us. Now, what kind of persecution did they endure? Well, they suffered, during this period of time, they were suffering a, a, a persecution, a, a trial, a tribulation, a difficulty that, as I said, was increasingly becoming hostile. The attitudes of Romans was, was changing. They did not like Christians. And so uh, Romans saw Christians as anti-patriotic. They, they did not support the empire, and they didn't support the empire because they wouldn't worship to the gods of the empire. And in the pagan mind, if you don't worship the gods, then you hate the Roman Empire. You're, you're the enemy of the state. And so therefore, that became the big issue for Christians during this period. They would not accept the pagan religion of the Romans, and therefore, the, the pagans saw them as, as enemies. They saw them as atheists, they were even called. And, and so they became the object of ridicule and insults. Uh, they were called cannibals by the Romans because uh, their misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper led them to believe that they were literally eating flesh and blood. And so there was a lot of ridicule, there was a lot of scorn, a lot of insults. They were boycotted, they were blacklisted, they couldn't be employed, they couldn't do business, and they suffered financial loss and social acceptance. But they had not yet faced the violent persecution, although in some cases they did, uh, to the extent that would later come. And if that weren't enough, they had other issues going on. What we'll see in the seven churches here is that there were issues with false doctrine. Not only were they facing persecution from without, but from within, they were dealing with false teachers and false doctrine and Christians being misled and Christians going astray and having to deal with the Nicolaitans and having to deal with the heresies, the Gnostics and the Docetists who existed in the early church. People saying that Christ did not come in the flesh or people that were saying it didn't matter what you did with your physical body, all that mattered what you did with your spirit. And that produced a third problem, and that was just immorality and sexuality and, and licentiousness. And so like you'll see in the church of, of Pergamum, that there was the, the licentiousness of the church, and God says, I'll put you on a sickbed. There was, there was a deviation. There was apostasy. And if you think about it, it's not much different than the church today. We have persecution from without, People do not like us. In fact, there are many people in our current culture and context that hate us. And the only thing that stops their hostility from making our lives more miserable is that we have laws that protect us. We also have, we also have plenty of heresy and false doctrine to go around. Oh, there's more than enough. And if that's not enough, we have plenty of capitulation to the culture and to apostasy, sexual immorality and wickedness and godlessness of all forms creeping in the church. And we don't have to look at all the other denominations to see it. We see it right from within. I could tell you how many horrific cases 
that I've seen not within just our little church, but in our network and in Reformed churches in general, it is a sad testimony for the church today. Sin, sin, sin abounds. And so with that, we need a greater vision for Christ. In verses 4 through 8, we get this first introduction to who Christ is. In verses 4 through 5, we're told that Christ is our Lord. Although John is the author of the book of Revelation, the human author, the true author is the author and finisher of our faith. This is the risen Christ. Chapter is very important for establishing a proper understanding and view of who the resurrected Christ is. He's no longer the carpenter from Galilee. In verse 4, we're introduced to the triune God. This, this revelation comes from the triune God in whom Christ is one. It comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. Whenever that reference is used in the book of Revelation, is speaking of God the Father. It is the God who is, the I am, the self-revelation of God in Exodus 3.14. The seven spirits refer to the Holy Spirit. The number seven, again, is one of completeness. And so the seven spirits refer to the complete and sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God. And Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the example of our witness, he is the firstborn of the dead, he is the pattern of our own promised resurrection, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. While Roman emperors are terrifying and their totalitarian power is scary, we must understand that all the rulers of the earth are subject to the authority of Christ. Pardon me. These allergies are killing me. And so we see in verse 4 through 5 that Christ is not alone, but Christ is one of three, that there are three in one in the divine trinity. And we'll see this overlap as we go further into this so we can understand that there is not three gods, but one God and three persons. That's why Jesus can say to Philip, Oh, Philip, oh, have you not known, I've been with you for years, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ is not only presented as our Lord in verses 4 through 5, but in 5 and 6, he is presented as our Savior. He is presented as our Savior to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Christ is our Savior. He loves us. That freedom, that liberty we spoke of today in the confession is purchased by the blood of Jesus. And he makes us into a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Christ wants the church to know that you are a kingdom of priests. There is a dark pagan world out there and that world cannot see God apart from us. We are the priests we are a priesthood of believers. We are the intermediary. We are the ones who intercede for the world. We are the ones who bring the world and the unbeliever to God through the gospel. We are the vehicle and the means. 
It is Christ's work continuing through his people, the church. Then finally, in verse 7, we are told that Christ will return. We're told that Christ will return. Verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, I, even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Just remember this, for all those people who tell you, oh, Christ came already, it was a secret coming. The Bible says nothing about a secret coming of Jesus. When Christ returns, it will be a very public event. Every eye will behold him. Everyone will know it will be the best day of our lives and it will be the absolute worst day of the lives of those who don't know him. It will happen. All of the wording there, though, it's interesting, all comes out of the Old Testament. Coming in the clouds is right out of Daniel's Son of Man prophecy, which we'll look at in just a moment. This idea of one like a son of man coming in the clouds or, or looking on him who was pierced. Zechariah 12.10 speaks, this is directly taken from there. It says, they will look on him whom they pierce. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I believe this is speaking directly to the nation of Israel, to the Jew, that when Christ returns, they will acknowledge and recognize that this is their Messiah and whom their forefathers have pierced and their guilt is upon them and they will weep and they will mourn because they will realize that Jesus Christ had visited them 2,000 years ago and they missed it. And then the quotation of the Alpha and Omega and the first and the last is taken directly from Isaiah 44, 6. This idea of Alpha and Omega is a translation into Greek, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet is to indicate that God is in all and through all and above all. Everything that exists is because of God. He's the beginning and he's the end of all creation. Everything exists because of God. This is to show us that indeed that, that the author of the book of Revelation, the one who's sending this message, is not uh, just John the Apostle, but the triune God is speaking to us. And we need to take seriously these words. We need to recognize who Christ is. He is our Lord, he is our Savior, and he's our returning King. And when Christ returns, guess what? There will be no more unbelievers. Everyone will be a believer on that day. But not everyone's going to heaven. Everyone will be a believer, but not everyone's going to heaven. Philippians 2 tells us on that day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And for those who do not know, bow, it will be a terrible day because they will bend the knee, but it will be at a great cost. And they will bend the knee, grinding their teeth and cursing God into eternal damnation. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That is a promise that you can count on. And it's also a threat. 
And so it's a, it's a threat to those who do not obey the gospel. It's a threat to those who do not know God. You need to take it seriously. Do we believe this? Do we believe Jesus is returning? If so, do we live like that? All the parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew from chapters 25 on deal with how do believers, how does the church respond to the second coming? Are we ready? Are we prepared? Do we think it's a joke? Will the day come upon you like a thief in the night? Are we preparing? Are we hastening the day of the Lord? Now we see the vision of Christ in verses 12 through 20. John says when he was on Potmos, Potmos, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice like a trumpet. And John then turned around to see who the voice was and behold, it was the risen Christ. I want to stop there. This vision doesn't begin with what John sees. It begins with, with what John hears. The vision begins with hearing, not seeing. And the same is with us. Our vision for Christ begins with what we hear, not with what we see. And what we hear comes revealed here in the scripture of who Jesus is. And John goes on to describe that when he turns around to see the voice, this terrible voice, this terrifying voice that was like a trumpet. Now, if you think about it, it was when God descended on Mount Sinai, what was the sound likened to? That of a great trumpet. When one entered the tabernacle into God's presence, they were to blow the trumpets in Israel. The trumpet symbolized the presence of God. And so when he heard this great sound, he turned and it was the risen Christ. And throughout Revelation, there are other metaphors used for the voice of God. It was like rushing waters or, or like a great thunder and lightning. It's a very overwhelming sound. It's a frightening sound. It's a chilling sound. It's a sound that calls your attention. And so John gives his attention. Now, there are no human words to describe his heavenly vision, so John uses two things, metaphors, and the only heavenly language he knows, that which is Scripture, the Word of God itself. And so he goes on to say, in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We have to understand that again, this is referring to the Son of Man prophecy, the Ancient of Days prophecy that Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 7. Turning your Bibles to the prophet Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, we read this. And as I looked, 
Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and the wheels were burning with fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, and the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned by fire, as the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You cannot miss that John is directly referencing this. Because what John realized is that what Daniel saw afar off, Daniel saw this son of man coming in the clouds who would be presented before the ancient of days and who would shatter the power of the, king, of the kingdoms of men. He saw this from afar and John is realizing, I am seeing it up close. It is the risen Christ. He is the son of man. And not only that, but the imagery Oh, it overlaps here because the, the hair-like wool and the, uh, uh, the idea of the white uh, robe, the long white robe and the golden sash uh, all refers and the fire is pointing back to the ancient of days. And that is because in Christ we see God the Father. Jesus Christ reflects God the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. His face shone brightly like the sun in its full strength. Oh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us, Let light shine out of darkness because he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory blazing brightly in his Son. The brilliant majesty of of Christ's glory is the glory of the Father. Glorify me, Christ says, with the glory I once shared with you, Father, in his high priestly prayer. You cannot separate the Son from the Father and the Father from the Son. Because when you look in Christ, you see the glory of God. All of these images here have interesting connections the seven golden lampstands. These represent the seven churches in Asia Minor. In fact, all the churches, the number seven is a word, number of completion, but it's a reminder that the church is a lampstand. The church has a purpose, and that is to be a light, a light to a world in darkness. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In this same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And he holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels, as it tells us. 
And I believe that what this is telling us is that every local church has an angel appointed to guard over that church, to protect that church, to minister to that church. And then we see the appearance of Christ. The appearance and the imagery tells us much about him. The robe and the sash, as I said, not only point us back to the Son of Man prophecy, but it, it indicates and tells us about Christ's priestly role. It was a priest who wore the pure white garment symbolizing holiness. It's a reminder that Jesus Christ is our high priest. In Hebrews 7.23, it says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, and here's the, here is the, the basis of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and those for the people, since he did it once and for all when he offered himself up. He is our high priest. His eyes, like flaming fire, remind us that Christ gazes into our souls his gaze is piercing and like a refiner's fire looks into us he knows our thoughts he knows our motives there is nothing hidden from the face of god we are all naked and bare before the risen christ his feet were burnished like bronze refined in the fire again bronze was a metal not used for uh, um, uh, delicate purposes. It was a hard metal. It was used to make swords and it was used to make weapons of warfare. And therefore, we see these fiery feet of bronze, a reminder of Christ coming as judge. That in him, God gave him the right to render judgment to the nations, to judgment to those who, who, he, who hate him. And so he is a holy warrior. He treads down the winepress of God's wrath. But what is the weapon of his warfare? It tells us this. The weapon of his warfare is not the weapons that we think, but it tells us it was a double-edged sword that came out of his mouth. It's his word. His word is his greatest weapon. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is a living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Christ says, it's not I who will judge you, but is my word what will judge you on judgment day. John chapter 12. God's word is powerful. It is God's word that brings kings into subjection. It, it breaks our soul. It shows us who we are. It is his word that brings life to our soul. Creating repentance and faith in our hearts. It is his word that sanctifies us. Makes us more like him. It is through his word that he conquers the nations.
It's a reminder that we have this weapon too. We have this weapon too. We fight so much arguing with, with different people and using human philosophy. When we have to remember 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, we, Although we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not for the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6 tells us that we have the sword of the Spirit, and we need to pick up and learn to be good swordsmen. Oh, the picture of Christ here is one that inspires awe, love, and terror. Verse 17 tells us, listen to John's account, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Reminds me of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah came into the presence of God in the Spirit, when his holy train filled the tabernacle, and the angels cried, holy, holy, holy. It was Isaiah, the prophet of Israel, who said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, when you have a vision for the risen Christ, you are going to fall to the ground as though dead. You will become undone. And I believe the reason why so many Christians have a careless attitude about their Christian walk and a careless attitude about worship is because they do not have a true vision of the risen Christ. Oh, that we would pray that God would open our eyes that we may see Jesus as he is here. That the fear of God may come into our hearts. Jesus put his hand on John and said, fear not. Fear not. And he raised him up. But you cannot be raised up until you are first brought low. And too many of us are walking like peacocks strutting along through time with our noses far in the air as if we're little gods ourselves. Oh, that we would fall to the ground like John. And I mean that. I thought about this. The reason why, as we get into the churches, there's problems in the churches is because they don't have a grand vision of who Christ is. They have a small view of who Jesus We still see him as the humble carpenter in Galilee. We see him still hanging on the cross. No, Jesus has risen. He is alive. He is seated in the heavens at the right hand of all power. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He rules. He is omnipresent. We need to have the fear of God in us. We need a renewed vision. We need to have an understanding of his majesty and holiness. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. The beautiful picture here is he lays his hand on John. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hades, and therefore the things that you've seen, those that are those that are to take place after this. For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars of the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Reminder, Jesus is present in his church. 
He is among us. Take, here's the takeaway. When you get up on Sunday morning for church, well, even before that, on Saturday night when it's before the Lord's Day, do you anticipate coming here to meet Jesus? Or is it just another part of your routine? I got to go to church. Are you anticipating meeting the risen Christ here? Because he is here. Well, I'm not seeing it, Bob. Then pray that God would open your eyes. It'll change fundamentally the way you think about worship. It'll fundamentally change the way you think about church. Because I tell you, if our attitudes are not right about Jesus, your attitude will never be right about church. The problem is people come to church and they see everything from the perspective of man. We look at it like it's a business. We have the consumer mentality. What am I getting out of the deal? Well, how should we do this? And how should we do that? This one offended me. and I don't like this. And I didn't like that song. And I, I didn't like Bob's sermon. He went, over, he went too long today. Maybe you're looking at the clock right now. Is that our attitude about worship? I say this because we're possibly planning to go into this new building. If our attitudes aren't right, it'll fall apart. As you see in these seven churches, in every church, Christ makes a threat. If you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand. We need a more serious view. We need the fear of God. And you see, once you have the fear of God in your heart, then you can love him. You can't love him if you don't fear him. Because we're not talking about servile fear. We're talking about the love and admiration and respect of acknowledging Christ as our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I thank you for this word. Much needed. We need a grand vision of you, Jesus. Humble us, I pray. Open the eyes of our heart. Enlarge our minds. Grant us faith and repentance. Oh, that we would behold the glory of your Father in your face. Oh, we need that, Lord. We need it. Shake us up. Shake us to our core. And then establish us in your love. Oh, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign ruler of your church. We're just stewards. And so, mighty God, we pray that you would hear our prayer. Do a work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.